Crime Corner, where we examine all things crime, whether it be on the page, on the screen, on the street, or in the courtroom. I'm Matt Coyle, author of the Rick Cahill Crime Series, and I'll be your host for as long as it takes. My guest tonight is an old friend. Holly West grew up in a small town in Northern California, then moved to the big city of Los Angeles to attend Loyola Marymount, where she earned a Bachelor of Arts in screenwriting. After shoving a few unproduced scripts in the proverbial desk drawer, and who hasn't done that, she succumbed to her baser instincts, and who hasn't done that, and turned to writing crime fiction. Her historical mystery, Mistress of Fortune, was nominated for the Left Coast Crime Rosebud Award, which has kind of been now named the um, Lefty Award, for Best Debut Novel in 2015. That was up in Portland, as I remember. Holly's short stories appear online and in numerous anthologies, including The Big Book of Jack the Ripper, Unloaded, and Killing Malman. Her short stories have been honored with Anthony Award nominations three times. Her latest book, Money on the Block, I'm sorry, The Money Block, came out in March. She's also the editor of, of The Murder of Go-Go's, a crime, writing, a crime fiction anthology inspired by the music of, guess, The Go-Go's. She lives in Northern California with her husband, Mick, and dogs, Stella and Brando. There's a theme there. She's a member of the Mystery Writers of America, for which she edits the Southern California Chapters newsletter. She's also a member of Sisters in Crime. Was formerly on the local organizing committee of VoucherCon 2020 in Sacramento, God bless her, where she served as register and webmaster. Welcome, Holly West. Thank you, Matt. Thank you so much for asking me to be here. And I have to say that your introduction makes me sound so much more competent um, than I actually am. Well, it's all the stuff I pulled off your website. So whatever lies you're putting there, I'm, I'm totally, taking yeah. it straight. I know, Actually, and I could have gone on. Uh, you know who Erin Mitchell is, right? Yeah. Yeah. So she actually wrote my bio a long, long time ago. Um, and How I do you just kind of. Uh, huh? How do you get somebody to write your bio? I wish I could do that. She just offered. It was awesome. Wow. She, uh, yeah, you know, she's a very generous person. And so she offered to, I, I think I might have put my website on Facebook or whatever. And she said, hey, want me to help you with your bio? And she, so she wrote it for me. And I've used it ever since. I, I tweak it as I add right. things and, you know, that sort of thing. But, yeah. Well, it's very well put together. Uh, compliments to Erin. So, she's a pro. <laughs> apparently. So we were going to talk about um, – True crime, but I wanted to talk first of all let you talk about uh, the Money Block, your latest piece of fiction, I believe. Um, so tell, yeah. I think it came out March, which is a great time for something to come out in the middle of the pandemic or just when it started yeah. to kick off. So uh, uh-huh. tell us about the Money Block. So the Money Block is part of a, a series created by Frank Zafiro, and it is about two um, con con people. They're a couple and they're deeply in love and they go around the country uh, con people out of their money. And so my episode is uh, surrounds cryptocurrency and in it Sam, Sam and uh, Rachel con this guy uh, into investing in their fake cryptocurrency. Um, and I have to say it was very a lot of fun to write. I had never done anything anywhere, anything like it 
because um, it's not a mystery so much as, you know, an unfolding, a straightforward unfolding of crime. And usually I write mysteries, so, you know, in that sense you're, like, dropping clues and, you know, red herrings and everything. So it's a, a totally different type of book, but I loved it. Well, plus you're picking up somebody else's characters, right? Yes. Yes. So I would think well, that, that would be a process as well. Yeah. Um, what, what I ended up doing is um, I, I usually start when I'm writing something, I do some character work first. And of course, he gave us a series Bible. Um, but there were some things that I needed to add just for the sake of my story. And so if I felt like I was changing or defining the characters in any way that he hadn't done before, I would run it by him and say, hey, is this going to work for the entire, you know, the series or the um, season? Because they were done, I think there's going to be three seasons, but I'm in season two. And um, and it was, you know, he, everything um, was fine. Um, so basically, I tweaked the characters for myself or for my story, sure. and I gave them emotions and motivations that went with my story, but it wasn't so far out um, of, of the, the Bible that, I mean, it, it worked. Um, because I couldn't write a story like that, or any story really, without like really examining the characters and figuring mm-hmm. out um, what it is they want most and, and things like that. And so in order to do that, I did have to add some stuff. To the narrative, mm-hmm. I'm sure all of the authors did. All right. You know, we all had a role in creating those characters. Speaking of the other authors, there were some uh, really good writers that wrote some of the other books, oh, right? Definitely, mm-hmm. definitely. I was in a good company. All right, like um, Eric Beatner, yes. Eric Beatner, Gary Phillips. Um, those are the two that spring to mind. Two uh, really good writers. Really good writers. Yeah, oh, uh, Eric Pruitt. Oh, uh, well, there you go. Another one. Yeah, you're a really good yeah, company. Super flattered. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was super flattered. I was like, well, well I'm not going to – you're self-deprecation, so I won't say what no, I was going to say. But, yeah. You deserve to be there, but it's always nice to be among writers like that. Okay, so um, I, saw, I knew this um, because I'm on your newsletter. I don't know when I signed up. I guess it was a slow day for me, but um, I'm on your newsletter, so I knew you were interested in crime fiction, but uh, or true crime rather. Um, but it seems like you're delving deeper into that now. So, uh, have you always been interested in true crime? Yes, true crime actually was one of the things that got me into writing fiction or into crime fiction. Um, I didn't. I was a late bloomer to crime fiction. I started reading in my early 30s, and that I started with. Um, I was really interested in the Black Dahlia. So I devoured, okay, of course, that wasn't fiction, um, but that's what, it was kind of like my gateway into both crime fiction and true crime. Um, and so I, I devoured anything I could find about the Black Dahlia. And then yeah. uh, I read uh, Sue Grafton's ABC series, um, one after the other, Lawrence Block, obviously they write crime fiction, and that's kind of where it all started for me. Um, as far as what I wanted to write. And my first novel, Mistress of Fortune, is actually based on a true-life murder that was unsolved that happened in the 1670s in England. And so I've kind of always been, it seems like a lot of the things that I do are based 
on real life murders. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and, and so anyway, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I didn't have anything to say. <laughs> um, you're about, I think you're about a decade younger than me. I, I grew up in San Diego, but uh-huh. before, obviously before 24 hour news cycles, before cable, even, I mean, that came when I was in high school, I think. But, um, Zodiac was on in the newspaper every day. I mean, I'm a, I was a 10 year old kid reading about Zodiac. So I'm wondering if that, you know, down here in San Diego, I, I, I still marvel at how that even, although it was obviously a huge story, but, um, and the way things were back then, it was also regional. I, and I really wonder how I got so much information on it, but did that have any influence on your true crime, uh, tilt or are you too young? Well, I'm going to have to say that the Zodiac was, um, before my time then. Well, you're quite young. <laughs> In your early 30s. I am. I am. Um, and yeah, so I didn't, I mean, it's, I don't even know when I would have become uh, aware of the Zodiac, probably in my 20s. Um, But I didn't, like I said, I wasn't, this is an interesting thing, too, is that in my 20s, I was single, and I lived alone. And I could not watch or read scary stuff back then. And so that almost that entire decade, I had to be very careful about what I watched. And I remember once on television, I don't know if it was like a 2020 or or one of those shows, but there yeah. was an episode about the Gainesville murders. Oh, and yeah. that still, you know, all the true crime I consume now and the, the gr- grimmest of things, but I will never forget that show. And I was just like, why the hell did I put myself through that? Because right. it, it was just so horrific and, and really haunting. And so sure. I had to be super careful. Um, but then I got married when I was 30, and it was like, oh, well, suddenly I have someone who can, you know, if I have a nightmare, I can just say, hey, wake up. I'm scared. Um, and, and I really, at that point, didn't, I could just kind of be free to explore it all. Um, but it's a very, it was a big contrast um, to con- considering where I'm at now versus how uh, squeamish I was then. Um, I suppose it, it, because I was by myself, I felt like, it, yeah, I guess I, I wonder, now I'm like kind of like delving into the psychology of it back in my 20s, no, it, but, uh, you know, maybe I felt more likely to be victim, victimized because I was alone. Right. There's some, there was somebody there for your back or your front. It's funny, when I got married, too, I thought a lot about murder. Um, oh, God. So how do you choose? This is being recorded, Matt. This is being recorded, so I'd be careful. I know it's okay. It's okay. How many times have you been married? Once, for a brief period. Okay, I was just curious. Okay. We are. We are. We are still friends. We are still friends, and we we share a dog. You share a dog, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think we are actually we're friends. Um. So how do you choose for your for your true crime? And it's mostly done through what I consider a blog newsletter, correct? Yes. How do you choose stories? Okay, that's a very interesting question. That's why I got it. It goes back to, (laughs) uh, where it started more recently is that when I moved back to Northern California, because I'd lived in uh, Los Angeles for like 30 years, but I grew up where I'm living now. And when I moved back, I had a real hard time, um, I don't know, getting 
like being comfortable with the fact that we moved. My identity had been forged in Los Angeles and the shift to a small rural town where I grew up was a little too much for me to take um, at first. And so one of the things that kind of got me more connected was a murder case that happened in 1984, which happened, um, one of the girls that was murdered was two years older, I think three years older than me, but she did go to my high school for a period of time. And um, a friend of mine that we went to high school together, uh, Maria Alexander, who you might know. Do you know Maria? Only through reading your bio and your website. But I like to read her stuff now. Oh, definitely. Well, she had written on her blog a post about this. And I was like, wow, why is it? I would have been like 16 at the time. Why didn't I remember this? And I started asking questions of, you know, family and friends, and no one remembered it. Or, or those people who did only remembered it very vaguely. And so I kind of took this really deep dive into um, those murders, and I ended up getting a subscription to, like, newspapers.com or, or whatever. And um, I went back, and I combed through every single article I could find on this case. And the, the bare bones of it were that uh, – during the summer of 84, three girls went missing and were subsequently, their remains were found. And it was over the course between June of 84 and August of 84. One of the more interesting aspects of it was that two of the girls lived in um, a group home that was in uh, Placerville, which is a gold mining town uh, near where I grew up and where I was living, and um, they were triplets. And what happened was the first trip, they, they were 14 years old, the, two of the triplets were living in this group home, the third, I'm not sure where she was living, but it wasn't in Placerville, I don't think. The first one was the first girl to go missing. Then there was a second girl that went missing, and then those remains were found. Huh? Not related. Not related. Right. But then the second triplet went missing. And so this guy murdered the two triplets, well, two of the triplets, and then a girl in between. And it was such an interesting, not interesting, but, you know, the fact that that he had taken the first triplet, murdered her, murdered a girl in between, then murdered, went back and, and got the second triplet, it just always was seen such a uh, like. See, imagine being this girl that was still alive, not the yeah. one that was not living in Placerville. And I, I realize I'm not saying this very clearly. Uh, you know, these pieces. That's one of the things about true crime too is that it gets very complicated fast. Um, right. And there's all these connections that you know. Once you know the whole story, you're like, oh wow, that's super interesting. But when you're trying to just tell the story like this, it's a little bit more difficult. But this is the, the thing that kind of sticks with me with this case, beyond the fact that it happened in my hometown and it happened when I was young and I was around the same age as the victim, was this idea that the first triplet went missing and then this other, the, the second triplet was still out and about, hanging out with the same crowd and everything, and how she must have been looking over her shoulder. I don't know at the time if she knew that she was a target, 
but there were certain accounts in the newspapers that said that she was definitely afraid of the guy who was eventually convicted. And I've gotten phone calls, since I wrote about that case on my blog, I've actually gotten phone calls from people who were alive and and in those uh, groups that that hung out in those uh, groups at the time. And they were like, yes, everybody knew that Michael Cox was the murderer. And they, I mean, people think, you know, well, I was one of the targets. And, you know, there's all these little stories that happen as well. Um, But anyway, long story short, that case um, became something that really kind of became much more connected to my town because of it, because I'm thinking about it in terms of what was happening in the past and sure. picturing all these things. And, and it was, it was a, you know, a, a helpful thing to me at that time. And so that kind of started me on the path that I am now, which is um, basically writing stories. You'll see, I don't know if you saw my blog, that I, you know, a lot of them happened in Lake Tahoe. Yeah. Um, and just the basic stuff around, I called it coming home to murder. And that's the yeah, idea that. that I am reconnecting to my past by delving into all of these crimes that happened, most of them before I even was born or that I was very young. Um, but the first one was contemporary so, contemporary to your growing up. In fact, one of the girls went to your high school. So that would definitely yeah. be a way to find a connection and, and a visceral that in a way that you know, most people wouldn't probably from 30,000 feet. Um, well, I don't want to, we're going to go, we're not going to go case by case, but you mentioned Tahoe, of course, which is my favorite yeah. place on earth. But, um, Tahoe. so, but however, um, talk a little bit about the Joseph case, if you would. Let me see. Is that the guy? South Lake Tahoe. Yeah. I'm going to So he's the guy who, just recently, um, yeah, Joseph Holt, yeah. Um, he, there were two girls that were murdered in the 80s uh, in Lake Tahoe, and it was an unsolved crime. Um, and as DNA evidence became, uh, as research uh, and, and uh, they became, uh, they got better tools and everything. They ended up doing the autopsy of one of the girls. Actually, no, this was in 1979. Sorry. So the first girl died in 77, and the right. second died in 1979. And so during the autopsy of the second girl, they found uh, DNA of the perpetrator on her body. Unfortunately, they weren't able to tell anything really beyond that initially. But Early stage. Yeah. Later, um, in 2017, so in 13, 2012 and 2013, they, were, uh, they found male DNA, uh, a male DNA profile on a swab taken from her body. Unfortunately, oh, and then there was blood on the first girl's shirt. They were not able to match it. They could not tell that um, it was from the same guy. But in 2017, uh, advanced technology allowed them to determine that it was the same guy had gotten both of them. And they uploaded it. I think this would be similar to the way they um, got the Golden State Killer. Are you familiar with the Golden State Killer? Yeah, didn't they use, is it Parabon? Parabon Lab? The DNA lab where they do the... Oh, that's they do the, the, ones, that's the Right, that's the the one in the case, the Lake 
case. I'm not sure if they're like the only guys in town right. for that kind of thing. But basically, right. they uploaded this DNA profile to a JedMatch or JedMatch.com, and they were able to narrow the search down to these four brothers. Um, all of them are now deceased, and they got DNA from the son of one of them, in, and it included a toothbrush that his father had used. And they identified Joseph Holt as uh, the murderer in uh, the South Lake Tahoe cases. He was already dead. Um, yeah, he died in 2014. So right. unfortunately, there's not going to be justice served in that case. But, I, you know, I think about that, too. There's one of the writer in me that's, like, searching for the character stuff, but I think about what that must have felt like for his son to get a phone call out of the blue saying, um, you know, can we get some DNA to see if your dad killed these people? So now, right. you know, because, you know, the reports, you know, came back, you know, like newspaper reports are saying, you know, they had no clue that their dad was, you know, had killed these people. Um, and to our knowledge, it was only the two of them. There are some other unsolved cases of females in Lake Tahoe, though, um, two in particular, and it'd be interesting to find out if maybe, you know, maybe he had something to do that. You don't want to, like, you know, accuse someone of something, but, you know, he's already well, he's, he's already, already a murderer, right? murderer. And they found this yeah, out you know. 30 years after the murders. There's no way yeah. he didn't kill more people as a well, as a, as a that, aficionado myself, I said, there's no way you didn't kill more people. Yes and no, though. And this will go back to the um, the Golden State Killer case. Okay, so he right. was a rapist in the, the late 70s, early 80s, and he then kind of moved on to murderers. Um, he had already, he had murdered some people before the rapes, but... Um, he kind of escalated after this series. I mean, he committed like 80 rapes in the Sacramento area, East uh, Sacramento. Before that, he was um, breaking into people, he was breaking into girls' uh, bedrooms and stealing their underwear down in, um, yes. or up in, uh, I always forget the name of the city. Huh? Anyway, anyway. You're familiar with the case. Right, oh, quite, quite, yeah. Oh, I had no idea. No. Um, that's, you know, this is interesting because we never talk. You and I, you know, we, I consider you a good writing, a good friend. But, like, when we actually see each other, we never actually really have much conversation. This is the most we've ever talked. Because we're usually insulting each other. Yeah. You know, you're insulting me. So oh, you I come have back. to fight back. You come back hard. Oh, I know I do. I know I do. <laughs> I'm, I'm good at that sort of thing, but uh, I have a lot of practice. So, but what I was going to say, you had said the thing about Joseph Holt and, you know, 30 years ago, right. he must have killed other people. I think that's kind of the common belief. However, in the case of the Golden State Killer, he did kind of stop. He stopped for a while, yeah, and, and then he stopped. He stopped, but then he stopped entirely, and I've heard... Discuss, in discussions of this case, it's like, well, it's kind of a common myth that serial killers keep killing until they're stopped. But there is also the possibility that he kind of just aged out 
caught right. it. First of all, he was very good at not getting caught. And so once you start getting old, and he would jump fences, and, you know, he was going in windows, and he did a right. lot of um, sure, athletic. prior to getting it. Yeah, exactly. And at some point, you know, you, you stop having those skills. And if you're afraid of getting caught, you might, you know, kind of dial it down a bit. But, we lose um, testosterone too, but the guy Joseph Holt, when that, you think of, when he wasn't that old forty years ago, he was like in his thirties, I think. So, um, I mean, BTK stopped for a while because he became some sort of enforcement officer, so he could use that disgusting power that he needed over people by telling them to cut their lawn or shut their dog up and stuff like that. So he had a job for like years and years. So he stopped, and all of a sudden he, uh, he you know, he got tired of being on the news, and he sent, got stupid and sensed. Uh, Something to the cops again. Anyway, yeah. um, up, up you know, point. What I was going to say, okay, but, but my second point about the Golden State Killer and possibly about Joseph Holt, because we don't really know much about him other than, you know, right. the newspaper report. Um, there wasn't a lot. You know, he's not going to go down in history the same way that someone like the Golden State Killer or BD, uh, BTK, BTK, is that who you said? Yeah, BTK, BTK, yeah. Um, these guys are like you know, kind of, I hate to use this word, but iconic when it comes to serial killers. Um, but the Golden State Killer, what I was going to say is that there's the second possibility is that for a period of time, they find another way to meet that need. Right. Um, as far as the, and so when you said the thing about the BTK killer and his, uh, the job that he had, um, it's possible that for whatever reason that enabled him to, to not like those urges were taken care of in other ways. Right. And I think that, um, a golden state, uh, killer stopped for a while when he started having kids. Uh Uh-huh. Exactly. Serial killers are people too. So, um, well, that's a very interesting thing to say. And and the fact is that they are, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't. Yeah, they should all go somewhere. Um, so you've written historical fiction, so you must love yes. re- research. I don't see how you can without uh, loving research. So, how is yeah. researching true crime different than researching for fiction, or is it? That's a, another good question. Um, I think it's not that different. In some respects. But the rabbit holes you go into are different. And one of the things that I did before I started writing my novels were I I did genealogical studies of both sides of my family. And I didn't take it back. You know, some people go back to, like, you know, caveman times if they can I kept mine to a a very short period Um, if I went too far beyond like 18 even too far beyond beyond 1900 Mm -hmm. um, and the reason is and I've I've come to realize this fairly recently actually because it kind of goes into the book that I'm writing now which is fiction um is the idea that violence and trauma impacts generations of families. And I think the number is like up to four generations. So Hmm. if something happens to your 
great-grandmother or your great-grandfather, um, that impacts you. It impacts maybe your children. Um, and I'm very, very interested in that idea. And um, so with the genealogy, for me, there's these two things. I, I love genealogical research. If I could get someone to pay me to research their families, that would be the best thing ever because I am good at it. And um, I just think it's the most interesting thing. So, like, recently I, I went to the graveyard near my house and I found this, this grave of this random person. And I started doing research on her and found out she had died in 1928. I found out that she had been married, like, four times. She had nine children. And, you know, if I wanted to, I could find her living relatives now. Um, and going... I find that that genealogical research and the true crime research is very connected, and especially the historical stuff. So, like, if I wanted to dig deeper, let's go back to the Joseph Holt thing. If I wanted to dig deeper into that, I could find out, like, who his uh, who his children are and what happened to, to them and, you know, who his parents were and what those histories were. You would be amazed at what you could find out on the Internet. It's oh, I know. crazy. It's crazy. Um, and so uh, for me, those two things are very connected. And so at that point, you're not looking for facts as far as the places and historical facts. You're looking for facts as they pertain to families. Mm. And that ties into what I'm talking about as, as far as the, the violence and trauma lasting for generations and families. Um, real quickly, there's a story. Uh, my my uh, brother-in-law's great, my brother-in-law's grandfather, his father. Sorry, I'm getting mixed up now. My brother-in-law's great-grandfather murdered his wife and brother. Wow. Was, murdered his wife and son. So this uh. is my my brother-in-law, the father of my nephew. And I am so fascinated to, I don't, and I don't talk about this with my brother-in-law hardly at all, right. but like Hopefully the idea that his grandfather was, was the one who lost his mother and brother, wow. raised my nephew's grandmother, and she raised my nephew's father. There are things that stay with you, patterns that emerge, and I, I just find that really fascinating. And, and I find that crime, not, I think you and I probably have different feelings when it comes to crime and criminals. Um, you, I feel like you're more of a law and order type person, whereas I'm more of the, I always call myself a bleeding heart liberal. I'm always looking not to blame anybody beyond the, the actual killer for their crime, but I want to know what happened to them to create them. Oh, sure. Does that make sense? Well, yeah, I think that uh, even if I am or was a law and order person, that's something that you would want to know because you want to um, find out how to keep this from happening. 
Um, oh, and Michael sure. Connolly, Michael Connolly has just started his second um, season of Murder Book, which is his podcast. And he's doing it's it a on great uh, podcast. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> a big surprise. Um, he's doing it on <laughs> Sam <know>. Little. Let me think. You check his principal. Right. He's doing it on Sam Little and the women who helped bring him down, mm-hmm. um, being cops mm-hmm. and also victims. And um, you know that they're. He's talking to somebody every week. They're get, getting information from him to try to, oh, my God, they have somebody. I, I was just listening to the first episode today, and they have him on tape. And she, just the, the He's like talking about uh, throwing a ball with a friend. It's just like so nonchalant. And, mm-hmm. and I'm not even going to say cold. There's no emotion whatsoever. It's just, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to say what he said, but um, – it's amazing, yeah. but anyway, so no, I, I definitely agree with the psych, you know, finding out the psychology of, of evil for sure. Speaking of evil, because we're running out of time, <laughs> um, you you were not evil. You were um, behind um, helping to get VoucherCon. Uh, There's something we used to have these things called um, conferences where people would actually go to places and talk to people face to face. It was very unusual. Um, VoucherCon. Remember that? Yeah, I bet you do. I bet you put two years <laughs> two years into it. My guess. Yeah. So, about yeah. 2020 in Sacramento, which everybody was looking forward to. I have family up there. I couldn't oh my wait God, to go. Yes. Um, yeah, but so, I don't know, just how re- rewarding to do it in the beginning, but how just shell shocked you must have been when it was canceled. And that's an interesting thing. I keep saying that every time you say something, I'm like, oh, that's scary. Oh, I'm fascinating. I'm um, fascinating. <laughs> yes. um, here's the thing. The last time I was around a group of people, you were there, and it was oh Left Coast Crime. The one-day conference. that was so difficult because in the days leading up to it where we knew – that the pandemic or the, the virus was going to be a serious thing. And so many people, especially like East Coast people and people with pre-existing conditions that they didn't, they, you know, they felt more vulnerable, backed out of it. And so we all arrive at the conference and suddenly we've got like 12 things that we're doing because we're trying to like moderate panels that, you know, you know what I'm saying? It's like we're like trying to scrambling. And it felt like very... Um, in a way, that felt good because it, it felt like this, like we were all camping or something. <laughs> you know, right. I agree completely. Exactly, and it felt it felt really good. And but on the flip side of that, it was this sense of like, should we even be here? Am I being yeah. irresponsible by being here? And right. it was so it was. And then, and then when it became clear that they were probably going to cancel it, I, I had all my panels on Friday, I think, and the only day the conference was there was Thursday. And I yeah. knew I was going to have to go back to my room to prepare. Like, I couldn't have fun on Thursday night because I had to prepare for my uh, <laughs> panels. And I was like, well, if this is going to get canceled, do it before I go back to my room to prepare. Right. And it did. Um, right, it did. And damn, those panels are going to be so good. But um, yeah. yeah, and that last night, I don't know if you were in the restaurant with everybody, but there was just really this feeling of of camaraderie yeah. that I, I feel so good about. Um, all that to say, but as far as Sacramento was concerned, when we came back from Left Coast Crime, because m- many of the uh, 
local organizing committee for Sacramento were, were there. And this was March. Board March. After that, yeah. In our first board meeting after that, which probably would have been in April, I basically said, I think we should just cancel now because we know we know this is is not we're not going to be able to have a live conference. I mean, I know it seems like oh, we're still six months out or, or whatever. But the thing is, when you're doing a big conference like that, the wheels of it don't just stop turning. You've got no. deposits to pay, and you've right. got people who've made big travel plans and all of that stuff. On the flip side of that, you didn't have necessarily like you signed the, the local, uh, the chair people of, of the conference, they've signed contracts with the hotels. Right. And so they're on the line as far as like the, the money that they promised to, to pay. So it was a really sticky situation and thankfully it all turned out okay. Um, and uh, Bashakan National helped out, and you know it all turned out okay. But I, like I like I said in April, I was like, we gotta cancel this, and and it was decided. I think maybe a month later, but it, it was well, clear after Left Coast Prime that it wasn't gonna happen. Well, you're you're well, you're prescient. You're a little bit ahead of times because there was still hope for things. But um, yeah, I mean they've already canceled uh, uh, New Mexico 2021 for Left Coast. Anyway, I, Cla- I do have I do have my time in the studio is clicking down. So you you mentioned your next okay. book. What, what's it about? Oh, it is based on the you know, the murder that we talked at, about at the top of this. Um, oh, the, the, the coming home three murder, the one about the three girls. It's oh, based wow. on that. So it'll be a fiction, fictionalization, loosely based on that. And I've had this in my mind for five years. I decided I didn't want to write it up as true crime because I didn't want to, this is a whole other topic we never got into, but the whole idea of didn't feel like my story to tell and um, bringing it back up for the survivors didn't seem to be something I wanted to do. So I thought, I'm just going to fictionalize it. And it will be unrecognizable once, you know, it goes through my little brain and, you know, the book is done. But that's where it started. Is it going to be during the same time period or is it going to be contemporary? A little bit later. So uh, August 1990 is, uh, or actually the summer of 1990 and then 2015. Because I was like, I don't want to deal with pandemic or anything like that. So um, take it back to 2015. We don't have time to talk about dealing dealing or not dealing with the pandemic, but I'm with you. I know. Anyway. Oh, my God. Anyway, well, thanks for stopping by. How can people find you on the World Wide Web and read about your um, true crime musings? I'm at hollywest.com. That's my website. And you can sign up for my newsletter. The newsletter um, also, like two weeks, usually I'll put the, the newsletter on my blog too. So you, all of that's there. Um, yeah, that's it. Well, thanks for coming on. I highly recommend people reading you, both fiction and um, true crime, because you're a really good writer. And uh, the, you know, I you. the the cases are always fascinating. You feel you feel sick about being interested in, but that's the way it is. So, thank you, Holly West, for coming in. Hopefully, um, I'll see you in 2021 sometime. Yeah. Maybe about your car yeah, in New Orleans. Thank you so much, Matt. You bet. Oh, dear, no. Supposed <laughs> to be in New Orleans in August. Well, we do it before. <laughs> it's the first time I ever ate shrimp and grits. I'm going back. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I spent the whole weekend uh, apologizing for my hair. 
I was, uh, yeah, I was, uh, there was a lot of uh, misting going on. I was, there was a lot of misting and then the elevators weren't working. So you were pressed up against people yeah. as you were shiny. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. But uh, hell, food was unbelievable. I'm going back. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So All right. thank, thank you, you so much, Matt. You bet. And take care of yourself. Okay. Okay. Bye. Bye. All right, folks. Um, we will be on in um, a couple weeks. I don't, I'm not going to give the specific name of the guest yet, but we'll be on in a couple weeks. In the meantime, if you're in a book club and like an author uh, to answer questions and talk about his work, I'd love to be that person. You can find my email address on my website, mattcoilbooks.com, and you can also hit the Novel Network link on there, and they'll be able to help you with um, getting me to talk at you. So I will talk to you in a couple weeks. Everybody be safe. Take care.